0: Dear Father, thank you, Father, for the chance to be reminded from your word of such contemporary matters for so many things, Father, that we struggle with from time to time. What wisdom you show in giving us a church like the church in Corinth, a church that clearly was suffering from many mistakes and many misunderstandings. And yet in your will and your sovereign wisdom, Father, you permitted this church to exist for a time. In this way, under these circumstances, so that in a future day, other bodies with similar concerns would have the wisdom of Paul's response. Father, I hope hope that you would give us the, the heart to see ourselves in this letter, not to be crushed by it, not to be discouraged by it, but to be sober in our understanding of who we are and who we need to be. Let our understanding drive us to live a more godly and pleasing life. Give us eyes, Father, for eternity to see what's coming in the future, to understand your promises and to see your glory one day. Knowing these things, Father, let it influence our life today. We do not seek to please the world, Father. We do not seek to to grow a church in its physical form, though you may, by your will, choose to do so. We seek, Father, to grow in spiritual maturity, to please you by how we live, by who we are in Christ. Let this letter, Father, as all your word does, drive us in that way to that conclusion. In your timing and by your will, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, onward we go through the list of concerns that Paul is addressing in the church in Corinth, beginning now in chapter 6. Last week Paul demanded that the church cease in judging unbelievers and that was just the latest in a long list of things that we're going to be studying in this letter. Going all the way back to the beginning, he started with divisions, and then he said the church was immature, the church was arrogant, they were tolerating sin among the members of the church, they were judging unbelievers rather than judging themselves, they were isolating themselves from the very people that they were supposed to be winning for Christ, and the hits will just keep coming because The discussion of judging now opens up a new opportunity, another topic related, in a sense, to this first one. It's the third major issue in the church, and he begins it very plainly, very clearly, in verse 1 of chapter 6. So coming off of the discussion of judging and failing to judge ourselves, Paul says in verse 1, verse 1, he says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So this sets up the next topic. We know Chloe, when she came with that delegation, she reported to Paul various things that were going on in the church. And now we see that she must have reported that men within the church were settling their personal disputes by taking one another to the Greek courts. Suing one another, in other words. One man would grab another in the church and take them to court. The word translated law in verse 1, dare to go to law is krino in the Greek, that's the word for judge, but it's expressed here in the middle voice in Greek, and that means that we would translate the word going before judgment. Going before judgment. So the Corinthian Christians were going before Greek courts, Greek judges, seeking relief over disputes they were having with one another in the church. And so Paul opens this next section in chapter 6 with a series of rhetorical questions to get the church's attention to the seriousness of this matter. And in fact, he's going to use this technique throughout chapter six, at least six different times. He's going to begin these questions with a phrase. Do you not know it reveals to us his frustration over this concern, probably over all of the concerns in this letter? He keeps asking the questions in this way because he's scolding them, even as he seeks to teach them, which remember, we defined that the addition of scolding and teaching together is the word admonish. So he continues to admonish them. I think it's because he had taught them on many of these things when he had been there. And then after he leaves, they slip back into this bad behavior. And so like a parent who's frustrated with a child who will not do what he's been told, Paul is expressing his frustration here through a series of questions. Did I not tell you? Do you not know? And so on. Clearly, he's not happy in this case with the fact that the church is seeking judgment from pagan, unbelieving courts in Corinth. But we have to understand fully why this bothers Paul. And to understand why he's so bothered by it, we go a little further down in the chapter. Look at verses two and three. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not confident to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So this is Paul's first do you not know question. And he raises with it the topic of the end of the age. As Paul raises the topic of the age to come, we need to understand what he's talking about. Paul says that in a time to come, the Lord will allow the saints to judge the world. Well, he's referring to the coming messianic or some would say millennial kingdom. The kingdom that the scriptures say will last for a thousand years immediately following Christ's second coming. That kingdom will exist on this earth in a very real, very complex way, such as the life we have today is. And that world will have believers in Jesus Christ, joining Christ in ruling over nations on the earth. We will be living in our resurrected, sinless, eternal bodies, we know. We will be living with Christ, who himself will be reigning physically here on earth from the seed of David in Jerusalem. These are things that the scriptures tell us. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, the scripture says we will share in that reign, in that judging of the world with Christ. Verse 4, John says, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. We also see this truth reflected in other places. I'm not going to rest entirely on one verse of the Bible to make this point because I don't have to. Jesus says that the family of believers are designated by our faith as a kingdom of priests, and as rulers over the kingdom to come. For example, in Revelation 5, 9, we read this. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, speaking to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Jesus then says he will grant us authority to rule because his father has granted him all authority and he can delegate. He says that in Revelation 2, 26 and 27. Jesus says, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. Notice Jesus says his authority won't arrive until he has assumed his role as king over all the nations, living here physically. And so we know that that comes at his second coming. So we should understand that our opportunity to rule comes as a function of his opportunity to rule. So we don't get that ruling power either until that time. And then Daniel says this in Daniel 7, speaking of the Antichrist first, he says in verse 26, the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away the Antichrist, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given, look, to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion will serve and obey him. So Jesus says our authority in that kingdom comes when his authority comes. We reign with him over nations Working with him in that rule and then finally jesus says our authority Whatever span of control we have whatever position or role we take in this world to come in which we will share in that rule Will be determined by our faithfulness while we serve him here and now Our life on earth in other words is a tryout In which we are demonstrating to jesus that we are worthy of greater opportunity to serve him in that coming kingdom Jesus taught this at multiple places in the, in the Gospels, but in one particularly well-known parable about minas, he says this at one point. I won't read the whole parable, but at a crucial point in verse 15 of Luke 19, Jesus telling the parable says, When the master returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten more minas. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, You are to be over five cities. If you know how that parable ends, there's one poor soul who does not make very much of what God has given him, and he does not receive anything in terms of authority. It's a parable, so we don't take all of it in a hyper-literal sense. We're not saying that the equation is one city for every mina you earn or so, such things. But it's making relationships clear. Those who are faithful to greater degrees receive greater authority and greater opportunity in the kingdom. So back to, to chapter 6 now. In verse 3 of chapter 6, Paul says, We will, the saints will, one day judge even the fallen angels. Jude tells us that the angels, i.e. the the fallen angels, the ones we call demons who sin, particularly in the day of Noah, for example, they are being held today in chains in the abyss. Why are they being held for their day of judgment, Jude says, Jude six and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He, the father, has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So there is a day of judgment to come for the angels. There is a time of judging to come in which the world is ruled by Christ and the saints. And we are ruling and judging over the nations. And now we learn from Paul that the saints who returned to earth with Jesus on that day have been deemed worthy to judge or to rule over the world and even to rule or judge over angels. Now, we don't know very much about the moment regarding angels. That's a bit of a mystery, right? How are we expected to rule or judge over the fallen angels? Well, I wonder, perhaps we are being made aware of this so that we might understand in that future moment that the angels or demons who have conspired against us and worked against the program of God in our life today, who have tormented the church, who are tormenting individual Christians at times, that those demons will be held to account and perhaps we will be given the opportunity to pronounce judgment against the very demons that brought harm to us. That's a speculation on my part. I have no idea if that's true. But if it's true, then that would mean that though the Lord is allowing demons to impact our lives today to a certain degree, much in the way that he allowed Satan to attack Job, nonetheless, it would suggest that he is planning for justice ultimately in the days to come so that we would participate in the judging of those angels who at earlier times were attacking us. Wouldn't that be like God, to give opportunity for justice to come in that way? I remember the souls under the altar in chapter 6 of Revelation, in which those who have been beheaded for their testimony are asking, when will we have revenge for what they have done to us? And he says, just wait for a little while. But it will come. The point in this comes in the second half of verses 2 and 3. The second half of each of those verses. This is Paul's application and the reason he's so bothered by the Corinthians' behavior. In verse two, he says, if the Lord considers us capable of reigning over the world with him in the kingdom to come, then certainly we should be able to judge trifling matters amongst ourselves. Now, Paul doesn't mean that our concerns today can't be serious ones or can't be complicated issues. What he's saying is that by comparison, the kind of judgments we make today are insignificant compared to the level of authority and judgment we will possess in the kingdom. And then in the second half of verse 3, he repeats this conclusion. He says, if we are deemed by the Lord worthy of judging the angelic realm, well, can't we handle human concerns, human matters? Would an accomplished surgeon seek medical advice from a first-year med student? Would a professional basketball athlete get tips from a high school player? That's equivalent to what this church is doing when it goes to the unbelieving pagan world for judgment, when it's already... Positioned by God to judge greater things. Now, Paul is not suggesting that we are automatically more wise in legal matters than unbelievers, for we know that there are unbelievers with much greater legal expertise than any of us. Paul is not speaking about expertise. He's speaking about outcomes. The body of Christ possesses God's wisdom and has the benefit of the Spirit's guidance Those qualities are superior to the world's wisdom for the purpose of arriving at just and righteous outcomes. It's not because we have greater legal expertise than they do. It's because we have different values than they do. We see matters with an eternal outlook, and that changes everything. Christians may and often will judge matters differently than the unbelieving world would. That's the whole point. What Paul's saying is we know things they don't know. We have experience and opportunities they don't have. We have access to wisdom through the spirit that they wouldn't even begin to understand. So when we look at a matter, we judge it with eternal perspectives and with godly wisdom, potentially. And that should lead us to righteous outcomes in our judgment and often different ones than the world would present. So those opening questions begin to beg this central idea or this central question. Why would Christians hand over judgment for their disputes internally within the church to people who do not share our values or share our outlook? Why would we want to do that? That's the question he raises in the next verses. Look at four through six. Paul says, so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who would be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Paul's question in verse four is a little hard to follow in our English translation. So a better translation would be this. He says, then when you have need for judgment in matters of this life, you select judges who have no standing in the church. That's really what he asked. Though the church will one day judge matters in all eternity in the kingdom, for now, he says, you've reversed roles with the unbelieving world. You're going to judge them. And yet, you're asking them to judge you. The church, he says, has selected Greek courts with their judges to come and judge them. Men who have no knowledge or relationship to the church. No standing in the church. Now, under what circumstances would the church expect an unbeliever to be their judge? Why is the Corinthian church taking this approach? Why do they value the Greek courts? The obvious answer is because they don't see anybody amongst them in their church who could exercise judgment with wisdom and fairness. They doubt the wisdom of the church, so they go outside the church to find satisfaction. Self-evidently, if you're willing to go outside the church for judgment to men who don't know the Lord and don't share your values, but you respect their opinions then you're saying something about what you feel of the leaders in your own church. You have a very low opinion of the judgment of the people in the church if you're willing to go do that. That's the conclusion he comes to in verse 5. He says, this situation is to the shame of the church. Specifically, it's shameful that there is not among them even one person wise enough to handle these matters. And the collective immaturity of the church was evidenced, again, by their choices and their decisions, like we've seen all the way through this letter. In this case, it was evidenced by one brother willing to take another brother to a Greek court. So how far do we go with this teaching? That's got to be the thing on your mind, right? That's the thing on my mind when I reach this point in the letter. I start to ask myself, what obligation do we have today in the church when it comes to settling disputes within the church? Well, let's be careful to separate the biblical principle that's in view here From Paul's specific application in the church in Corinth. I see at least two principles at the center of his teaching, which would then endure separate from the specific application. The first principle is the church must seek to settle disputes within the family of God. So if we have disputes with other Christians, we must settle those disputes within the church. We are not to air our dirty laundry in front of unbelievers. This isn't simply about we don't want the world to know that we get into arguments or we don't want to show the world that we sometimes fight within the church. That's not his first concern, although I think our witness is to a degree at issue here. But the real concern is whether the church is settling disputes according to the right standards, because our standards are different than the unbelieving world. Therefore, our judgments will look different than the unbelieving world. Our rule book is different than the unbelieving world, according to it and not by the counsel of the world. And I think probably the most common example would be a Christian couple going through a legal divorce. Now, ignoring for a moment the fact that divorce is wrong by itself, to conduct that divorce before an unbelieving judge would seem to me to be adding sin upon sin. So we should judge ourselves. We seek to resolve concerns within the church. Secondly, we will have responsibilities in the kingdom to judge. I understand that sitting here on a on a sleepy Sunday morning leaves our minds and our hearts far and distant from what is reality. But friends, we're going to find ourselves in another world in an instant, whether by death or by the rapture. And then everything that follows thereafter will lead us into the kingdom. And it will shock our entire existence, to say the least. And we'll suddenly feel the weight of what's coming and the responsibility that will be given to us, and we'll know the results of our judgment. And we will have a whole new experience to contend with at that point. To the degree we start to think about that now, it will be to our betterment, to our advantage. Paul says, "...it is to the shame of this church that no one was found within their ranks capable of exercising judgment over even small matters." That means they're not ready for the judgment period they're going to have when they move into the kingdom. It means they'll be like that slave who is judged unworthy for greater responsibility. That's a big concern. I mean, forget the little dispute that started the whole argument. What about eternal things? The church has to take responsibility to make the most of our minas, so to speak, so that in the judgment day we'll be counted worthy of the cities, the responsibility So the two principles here are deal with our own issues within the church. Secondly, develop within us the capacity to be wise in making such judgments so that we can earn the opportunity to do more for Christ later. Now, those principles in and of themselves do not, in my opinion, automatically preclude using law courts when absolutely necessary. There are situations we can understand where that would be a requirement. For example, if our dispute lies with an unbeliever, Well, then clearly we're going to have to use regular law courts because we're not going to expect an unbeliever to subject themselves to the word of God or to the ruling of the church. We we get that, right? So clearly if we're dealing with something outside the church, we go to where the world goes. Unfortunately, there may also be times when we use law courts to settle a dispute with a brother or a sister in the Lord. It may be necessary because if you are subpoenaed, If you're required to appear before that judge, you now refer to Romans 13, which says we must be subject to the legal authorities wherever we are. So I might feel compelled to go to that court. I might have to deal with it out of necessity. So I'm not saying that, you know, there's some hard and fast rule about don't set foot in a court. What we're saying, though, is, as Paul would say himself, so far as it depends on us to be at peace with all men. And as we choose to engage in conflict where necessary, we stay within the church or we do nothing. If it's forced upon us from the outside and we have to contend with it, we may have to make an appearance in court according to the rules of the law. But look what Paul says in verse 7. It would be better to lose our earthly dispute if it allows us to preserve our heavenly reward. Verse 7, he says, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Why would Paul say it's better to be defrauded or wronged? Well, for these Corinthians, Paul says it was already a defeat that they went to an unbelieving court. They've already lost. In what sense? The word for defeat here in Greek, it literally means a loss. You have already lost when you went to court. I think that would be the better translation. This is the difference between living with a worldly perspective and living with an eternal perspective. As Christians, we are told to consider the eternal implications of every decision we make. And as we conduct ourselves in this age, we are having an impact on the next. As we live with our wife or our husband, as we raise our kids, as we spend our money, as we schedule our time, how are those decisions impacting the glory of Christ and our judgment and our eternal inheritance? That's supposed to be what's on our mind at all times. So when we make a decision to take a brother or a sister or a wife or a husband to a unbelieving judge in a pagan court, which is what the world is filled with here as well, we have made a decision with eternal implications. We may win in that court. Paul says, even if you do win in the court and you get the house and you get the car and you get the custody or you resolve the property line dispute or you keep the business from your partner or whatever the dispute is, even if you win those things, Paul says, there will be loss. Perhaps the dispute is over money and you may feel that you are owed those things. You may feel the right and just thing is to get that outcome. That's why you're going to court to prove your case. Regardless of what you win for yourself in this life, the real question a Christian should be asking is, how will that gain compare to whatever eternal reward is on the line for my decision to act in a way that's contrary to Scripture? It's hard to believe that whatever you might obtain in the human court could possibly stand up against the test of what's at risk in the eternal realm. That's why Paul says in verse 7, wouldn't you rather be wronged? I mean, wouldn't you rather be defrauded? The old game show, right? What's behind door number two? So here's the thing you want to win in court, but then there's something behind this door in eternity God has got held out for those who love him and who serve him and, and please him. You want this or you want what's behind the door? I'm here to tell you, you never want what this is over what's behind that door. Never. If your brother or sister is determined to act sinfully against you, why would you fight them and join in their sin? Was Jesus inclined to strike back when he was struck? When he was being wronged, did he defend himself? Or did he withhold his right to defend himself under the circumstances? He withheld it, the scripture says. Even though he was 100% just and did not deserve what was happening to him, he took it with no defense of himself. Why? Just to be a martyr? Just to show that he could take it? No, because he had been commanded to do so by his father. So to do anything else would have been sin. So his challenge was not to call the legion of angels down, not to do what he could have done with just a word out of his mouth to defend himself, because to have defended himself in the face of that injustice would have been displeasing to his father. And so in a sense, you could say Jesus preserved his eternal reward, his eternal inheritance by submitting to the abuse that came his way. Because what he might have gained in the short term could never have compared to what the father made available to him. Isaiah prophetically describes this easily the best of anywhere I know in scripture in in Isaiah 53. Listen to this passage out of 53. Speaking of Jesus and what he did. Verse seven, he says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will he will see his offspring. He will see his days prolonged and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I, the father, will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So is it too great a thing for Jesus to ask us to follow in his footsteps? To forego some earthly gain, if It pleases the father to do so. We're conditioned, I know, by the world and by the way we think as human beings to to think we have a right to justice and to recompense. Anytime someone wrongs us, we throw the word right around in our culture, particularly in the United States, as if anything I want can be made a right. We let our earthly needs and our pride and our ego get in the way of godliness and charity and forgiveness and grace and suffering for the sake of Christ. According to Scripture, though, it's better to lose your court case. It's better not even to go to court, even if it means suffering financial loss, than it would be to lose the Lord's approval. As I said at the outset, there are times when going to court is the right thing, and I know that we will all be led by the Spirit in those moments. What I am trying to say, though, from the authority of Scripture is there's probably fewer of those moments than we're willing to admit. I've had to counsel individual Christians who've come to me on this particular issue out of Scripture and said, I've got a neighbor. He's a Christian and he's encroaching on my property line. I tried to reason with him. He won't listen. Should I sue him? And my answer to him is work through the church. And if it doesn't work, let him have your property. It's going to burn up anyway. Save your eternal reward. So let's summarize the practical implications of Paul's teaching. First, the church should be the place where we bring our disputes between the believers. And those decisions we would trust are made with the wisdom of Scripture and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But... But whatever they are, they are. And then we have to live according to the decisions of our elders or other church leaders who we've entrusted with those decisions. We have to be willing to accept the result. And then we abide by them. We do so not because they're always right or because we like them. We do them because we're trying to please the Lord. Secondly, if we find ourselves in a dispute with a believer who will not submit to the church's authority, then you should carefully and prayerfully consider how to proceed from that point forward. If you are taken to court by that believer, then you have a choice to make. Do you believe in proceedings of that kind and do you participate in them at the risk of sinning as Paul has described here? Sometimes you may have to. Sometimes you have a choice not to. But just remember, you're making decisions that have eternal implications. So far as it depends on us, let us be at peace with all men. And so let the believer act out as they choose against us. And as Christ did, be quiet. Rest in the Lord. Your Father in heaven will see your obedience and will reward you in the day. Like he did for his son. You've heard me say a lot of times, even in my prayers, we opened this morning, have eyes for eternity. And this is an excellent example of what I mean by that phrase. It's not just a trite little saying. It means every day making the choices and decisions that you make conscious of how it impacts eternity. Living with an awareness of that, aware of the Lord's expectations, aware of your coming judgment, placing a higher value on what the future holds than on what you can get for yourself in the present. Because this world is passing and the kingdom is right around the corner. We're going to finish with that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father. Father, we seek to follow you and to please you. There'll be times, Father, when we're put in situations that we know are just impossible. We can't begin to see our way through them without perhaps making a step one way or another that will not please you. Where. We feel our family at risk or our very livelihood at risk or our reputation at risk. And yet your scriptures speak to us, Father, with words that are clear, that have never changed and never will. So I pray, Father, that we would first be protected from disputes, kept from these things altogether. But, Father, if it should come to pass that we find ourselves embroiled in a dispute with another believer, I pray, Father, you would give us a heart like Jesus had, pity and mercy and grace, willing to sacrifice and to let go of things we have rights to. If that be necessary to preserve fellowship, Father, if it be the right way to show our love for the brothers and sisters we have, to be obedient to you. And then there may be times, Father, when you do call us to stand up to protect the weak, to protect the innocent, to take matters even to a court of law that is not run by believers so that we might do the right thing. We know that there are opportunities that might come in that way, Father. We know that the rules here are are set for righteousness' sake and not merely for the sake of themselves. I pray you would always guide us properly in those things. but, But make sure, Father, that we've tested these things in our heart. Convict us when we have acted out of selfish interest and not out of obedience. Let us set a different example to the world. And let this church, Father, be wise and capable of exercising the judgment that you ask us to exercise now so that we'll be ready for the one that comes. Let us have eyes for eternity in all that we do. And thank you, Father, for a church in which these things are brought to our attention and not swept under the rug. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.